Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is Sufism or Islamic mysticism. My guest is Charles Upton, who has been a practicing Sufi for over a quarter century. He is the author of over 20 books on the traditionalist movement and its metaphysics, including folk metaphysics, mystical meanings in traditional folk songs and spirituals, knowings in the arts of metaphysics, cosmology, and the spiritual path, the science of the greater jihad, essays in principial psychology, day and night on the Sufi path, the System of the Antichrist, Truth and Falsehood in Postmodernism and the New Age, Vectors of the Counter-Initiation, the Course and Destiny of Inverted Spirituality, and most recently, The Alien Disclosure Deception, the Metaphysics of Social Engineering. Charles is in Lexington, Kentucky, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Charles. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Yes, the same here. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's always a delight. Well, we're going to be exploring Sufism. I know it's been a passion of yours for must be well over three decades now. Yeah, I guess 1988 was when I took that step. And I'm sure our viewers understand that Sufism is Islamic mysticism. But other than that, uh, for the viewers who haven't ever participated in uh, Sufi communities or activities, it, it must seem very mysterious. So, uh, to begin with, uh, let's try and define it. I imagine uh, one way to look at Sufism is is that it's uh, you could say it's a comparable to yoga for Hinduism, but then again, it's very different than yoga. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's similar. You know, it, it, in other words, it has a method. But uh, the difference, I would say, between yoga and a lot of spiritual methods and Sufism is that, well, you could say that the purpose of yoga is to reach particular states particular types of samadhi, which are defined, and, you know, and, you know, you work toward that goal. And uh, while th that that is in a way, in a way that happens in Sufism, it's just very important. Sufis always emphasize that states are not acquisitions, they are gifts, they're gifts uh, of Allah. Because um, if you think, well, you know, I, I, I've, I've reached this, this degree of, of moral uh, rectitude, and I've done these spiritual practices, and so I expect God to come through and give me a state, you know, and where's this state, you know? And so uh, Sufis are, are very careful to say, we do not bargain with God. We do our part. He does his part, and it's important to separate them and, and not make a one-on-one a, a -on -one, um, uh, equation between them, because that's, you know, thinking you can... Uh, 
you can control God or bargain with him, and we don't, we don't believe that. I noticed in your book, Day and Night on the Sufi Path, that you refer to God in the masculine uh, gender, as, as you just did, and you refer to the soul, or nafs, in the feminine gender. There are various reasons for that. Some of them are simply historical and culturally determined, as we would all sort of, that would be our, the first thought of many people nowadays. Now, Allah is, um, is, not, is not considered to have gender, and yet the, the, Allah is compared to figures familiar to Arabs of the time, familiar to us today, which we, gen we generally think of as masculine. You know, it's, it's um, you know, Lord of the world's owner of the day of judgment, you know, and it's, it's it, it, in, so, so one would say that, that God, who in his essence is beyond gender, and, um, you know, I have to say that the, 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 the second most important name of God is Al-Rahman, the All-Merciful, and the, the Quran even says you can call him Allah or you can call him Al-Rahman. So it's that, you know, that close. And, and th this comes from uh, an Arabic root for womb, which is a feminine uh, noun. So, you know, you, you can, and, and I believe, I may be wrong here because I'm not an Arabist, but I think Al-Zat, which is the essence, the unknowable, absolute essence of God, is also a feminine gender. I could be wrong. But so, but but in relationship to the um, the manifest universe, and that this is very common in mysticism in, in, for many traditions. <clears throat> um, God is seen as active, which is what we you know have traditionally attributed to the masculine gender, and the soul is seen as receptive. And so you know there there are some mystics who, who say that that a man must become a woman, you know. Uh, in, in order to uh, to be responsive to the will of God, whereas m Muslims have a harder time saying that. You know, they tend to say women are just as good as men. In fact, really good women become men. You know, so you know that's which is is a little difficult for us for us to uh, deal with these days. But you know, so uh, but you know there, there there's Allah who is absolute reality and beyond polarity, beyond gender, and then there's you know, if there is action, we say the action is Allah's action. You know, uh, there's a verse in the Quran that says, Allah, you know, has created you and what you do, which sounds like pure, you know, deterministic predestination. You know, you're just, you're just a mere puppet of, of, of God. So how, how could you presume to try to be good or try to achieve anything? He'll do what he, what, you know, a kind of a, a Calvinist uh, uh, idea, and really, that's just one verse. All the other verses, you know, dozens and and perhaps hundreds of them say, "Meet the mark, be good, you know, <laughs> strive," you know. And then, on the other hand, you know, Allah has created you, but He's also created all your actions. So th this becomes a mystical paradox. You put those together, and you have you know, one of the perennial mystical paradoxes of all religions, at least all theistic religions. Well, I guess it's fair to say that there are different versions of Sufism. 
I've uh, had a chance to interview a, f- a few Sufi teachers along the way, and some of them maintain, for example, that Sufism is older than Islam, and it, it's been around much longer. Well, yeah, that's, you know, I, I do not hold to that um, that theory except provisionally. I mean, there are elements of... Uh, of a spiritual practice. I mean, if, if you want to look at certain elements of Sufism, I believe you can you can trace them back, you know, in, in the Judeo, in the in the Christian and Jewish line, you know, to to uh, you know uh, periods before uh, the Prophet came and before, before the Quran descended, you know, um, the, the the use of uh, of a continuous invocation of the name of God, you know, which is zekt, which means just remembrance. Well, you know, the, the Christian hesychasts have mnimi theu, which is the same, literally the same as as uh, zekra Allah, remembrance of God. You know, and and in fact, if you want to say compare something to Sufism, probably inform the closest comparison would be with Eastern Orthodox hesychasm. The same relationship to the spiritual master, the same methodology, largely, and you know so many uh, so many similarities. But what I believe is God sends dispensations; He sends revelations, and when the, when a revelation comes, it becomes preeminent, and then various tributaries from other religions and from from the past, and from other cultures come and they make they make obeisance or, or 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 they give tribute to that new revelation and become stamped with its nature so in that sense sufism comes entirely from the prophet and from the quran i mean you know as you, as you probably saw in my book there are many concepts uh in spiritual anthropology, you know, the, the, the nature, the actual nature, deep nature of the human form, and in metaphysics and in different spiritual states and all of this, you can find uh, verses from the Quran that, that directly refer to these. Some of them are referring to more external things at the same time, but the Sufis do a, you know, a batini, an inner exegesis of these, and says, well, that this is talking about the state of expansion. This is talking about the state of 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 uh, recollection, and um, so after the coming of, of the prophet, it all it all became Islamic, and 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 it was revivified and, and re uh, reauthorized by the uh, that revelation that, that descended upon Muhammad from Allah. So to that degree, it, it's all traceable back to uh, to Allah. But there are there are elements, you know. It's interesting. La ilaha illallah is, you know, the first part of the Shahada, which is that—that that is, you know, there is no god but God, and um, that's the most common form of the invocation of the name of God in Sufism, and that's all—that's also what one says along with the uh, Wa Muhammadun Rasulullah, which is and Muhammad is the messenger of of God. Uh, that's what a Muslim says before two male Muslims in order to enter the religion. That's all it takes. So it's very central. But then it's interesting that, that the, the, the war cry of the zealots was, you know, um, uh, there is no Lord but God. 
Now, they meant something else. They meant we're not going to worship the Roman emperor, you know, who, who is supposed to be a god, at least in the provinces. And here's this, you know, we're supposed to use this Roman money with, with this symbol of the divine emperor on it. And we'll have none of it. That's what they meant. So, in other words, the, the, you're, you're going to see certain similarities. There's, a, there's another one in the, the, the uh, um covenants of the prophet Muhammad with the Christians of his time, um, at least one of these covenants talks about uh, various you know, Christians who, who shall not be subject to tax, including monks and, um, and, and uh, prelates and such as, such as this, but also um, hermits. And it talks about her hermits living in, living in their towers in the wilderness dressed in wool, which is very interesting. In other words, you know, uh, because one of the meanings of the word Sufi, and it has it as many different different etymological meanings, um, is uh, it, it means wool wool clad. And uh, so you see, well, wait a minute, uh, um, holy hermits, contemplative hermits, are recognized by the Prophet in the Christian world, obviously from before Islam, as being wool clad. So this is something. You see a connection, you know, and um, it's very much, you know, you, you could draw a connection between the Sufis and the Nazarites because the Nazarites in, in Judaism um, were a spiritual brotherhood. Many of them were shepherds and um, Jesus called himself the good shepherd. Well, the good shepherd dresses in wool, right? If he's, a, if he's a, you know, he's the lamb of God. And so, so, so he's, he dresses in wool. So you see, you know, lines of symbolism, lines of like this. But the impetus and the authorization and the command, you know, to remember Allah, la ilaha illallah, came at one time to one man, the, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, in his cave in Mount Hera, and w when when the Quran first descended. So that's the way I I parse that. Well, one of the interesting facts that I discovered in your book, Day and Night on the Sufi Path, is that there is no monastic tradition within Islam or within Sufism. You know, there is no monasticism in Islam. Uh, you know, means that, that monasticism is not to be an established um, institution within the Islamic framework. Now, the Islamic, you know, the, the closest thing to uh, a, a monastery in Islam is the, the various Sufi lodges, you know, called Zawiyas in Arabic and Hanukkahs in uh, Persian and Tekes in, in Turkish, you know. But these are more lodges than they are monasteries. You know, pe people people go there on a temporary basis, or they go there for the meetings. And you know, a lodge is probably the, the, the closest term we would have in English. You know, to 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 what what these institutions are. Now, of course, there have always been hermits, and you know, uh, I mean, her hermits hermits have existed uh, before Islam and within Islam and within Sufism. And also, there's this group called the Al Al Sufa, which means the people of the. It's translated as the people of the bench. And Sufa, this is another word that, that Sufism is is uh, 
uh, etymologically related to um, in some people's minds. And I think this is more likely the actual derivation. Um, this is where we get our word sofa from, you know. So what happened is the, the, in, at the prophet's house, there were people who collected around him who were contemplatives. And they spent time, um, you know, basically doing their spiritual practices and praying and undoubtedly invoking the name of God at the prophet's residence. And they became sort of the core of a, of a contemplative strand within uh, Islam that I'm, I'm pretty sure must have been one of the main origins of what later became Sufism. But they weren't separated from the, from the rest of the community. Most of them were married. And I'm assuming that most of them had their own homes as well, you know. So th th there's something, you know, very much like monasticism, but, it, but it's not separation from the community. That's the main difference. Well, I suspect many of our viewers, because our, our audience, I think, is largely English speaking, uh, have had exposure to various Sufi organizations that have reached out to the West, the teachings of Idris Shah or Pir Vilayat Khan, uh, and, and so on. People are probably familiar with the Sufi choir and Sufi dancing. and Sufi dancing. Oh, yeah, I, I did that for a while, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually met Sufi Sam, one of the founders of or the founder of Sufi dancing on a couple of occasions. So, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, this is a kind of um, it's a it's a was a bridge between Orthodox Sufism and what was going on in the West. I mean, when Pir Khan came to the West, he was uh, um, hosted by the Theosophical Society at one point, and you know, he, he came more or less into the milieu and and gave to them and to the people who were attracted to them the kind and level of teaching that he thought would be acceptable in the West. And it's a little bit uh, uh, Sufi Sam, Samuel Lewis did the same with, with the hippies in a later generation. Um, and Idris Shah, oh, who was Idris Shah? <laughs> reputed to be the king of the Sufis, which uh, there's uh, of which there's no such thing. But anyway, uh, his books were very interesting to me and my wife at one point. They were the bridge between all of the reading of uh, Jungianism and Joseph Campbell and all the mythopoetic reading to the writings of the traditionalists, you know, René Guinot and Fritjof Schoen. That They were the bridge books, you know, and, you know, you, you can read a hundred of those books, you know, in, in, in a summer and, and forget them all, but somehow they're still working on your, your unconscious, you know. So, I mean, this is all very interesting material, but after, after Idris Shah, after Samuel Lewis, after Pirvalai Khan started to come the more orthodox Sufi orders to the West, um, you know, including the Namatulahis and uh, Shadilis, uh, Qadiris, uh, Naqshbandis, such, and Idris Shah sort of identified with the Naqshbandis, but he also thought that uh, Sufism could be separated from Islam, which <clears throat> something can be separated from Islam and, and called Sufism. And I will not say that, that that has no function whatsoever, but it's not Sufism in its fullness or in its, you know, I mean, you, you, you can you can cut 
cut some flowers in your garden and put them in a vase and they will be beautiful and smell nice for a day and then they will die. You know, so it has, it has to remain connected to the root if it's going to go on. Well, one of the important concepts in your writing is the the notion of the jihad. You have a book on the, the greater jihad and you contrast that with the lesser jihad. Uh, can you explain what you mean? There is a a hadith, a tradition of the prophet, where I forget what battle it was, but uh, he and his warriors were returning from a battle uh, back to uh, the community, and uh, the prophet said, uh, "Well, now we return from from you know the lesser war to the greater war." And they asked him, "What is the greater war? What is the greater struggle?" And he said, "The war against the soul." Now, that sounds strange in our terms, you know, because to us, soul is generally something spiritual, something, you know, essential to the human being, something positive, something you want to realize and you want to, you know. And so what's this war against the soul? Well, that that is the word, uh, the English translation of the word nafs. And nafs, yes, it means soul, but it, it's, a, it's a complex concept, complex concept. I mean, um, one uh, one Sufi, um, Dr. Javad Nurbaksh, who's of the Namatullahi order, passed away some years ago. <clears throat> he was the head of um, the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Tehran. And uh, he, he said something like, uh, Western psych psychology has everything to learn from Sufism. Sufism has nothing to learn from Western psychology. But... That was, you know, but basically he said, well, the nafs is like the Freudian idea of the id, you know, the lower, lower self, you know, the impulsive self. And um, that's partly true. I mean, and, 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 and that's entirely true in, 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 in so far as it goes and in so far as he went and sang. But there are many other elements to it. So essentially we were going to we're talking before we started about. Um, you know, defining what Sufism is in its essence. And I think I would like to try to do that. And this will take us back to the question of the nafs, but with some context to it. So well, what is Sufism? Um, I think in the simplest way, you would say this is the endeavor and the practice of being constantly aware of the presence of God under all circumstances, which is, you can say, I believe God is everywhere. I believe God is all knowing. I believe God is all loving. But how does this become a living experience? That's, that's essentially, if there is a goal, that's the goal. And uh, this is the purpose of, of the constant remembrance of God and, and you know and through the invocation of the name of God but the question is as we all know we may try I'm going to say from now on I will only remember God I, I know that God is everywhere and I'm simply going to see that from now on well fine but it doesn't usually work out that way we get distracted we get very you know whole universes of of thought, feeling, and, and projection and psychological stuff are created that get in the way of you in that very simple reality. And 
in terms of Sufism, what creates all of that stuff, all, all, of, all of that misdirection away from the simple presence of God is called the nafs. Now, the nafs has different levels, however, or different, different stages of development. So what we're talking about now is the nafs alamara bilsu, which is, means the nafs commanding to evil. And that's simply your impulsive self. You know, I want this, so I'll do it. I want, I want that, so I'll grab it. You know, I want to, I want to, you know, to, to, to think this and let my mind go off in some tangent. So I'll do it, you know, and, and th th this is who we are uh, before we have much of a sense at all of the reality of God and, 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 and of what the human being would be in our fullness in the presence of God, because we're only in our fullness, in our integrity, in that presence. So um, th this, this is, is, is the commanding mass. And, uh, you know, there, there are some people who, whose idea of, of uh, self-realization is to become one with the commanding mass. What I try to do is, is to become one with my impulses, because otherwise I get, I get nervous and I feel bad, and I don't want that. So I will just completely do whatever my impulses say. And, you know, we, we, we see people acting like that, and even in, in some instances trying to create a religion on that basis. And this, this doesn't work out very well, generally speaking, as the human race has discovered over many millennia. Um, so we have, we have the commanding nafs. Now, what do you do about the commanding nafs? The war against the soul. Then you get to the place where, well, you know, that commanding nafs. And you don't notice that there's such a thing as the nafs until you, you have a sense of the presence of God and, and, and a sense that, that there are at least moral rules that have to be followed. When you have those, the, those rules in place, then you start to see that there's something that does not like that you are following those rules and does not want you to spend all your time thinking about God. You should think about, you know, lust and greed and, and anger and all sorts of other things that are much more interesting than God, you know? Um, so, so the nafs only appears as the nafs when you have made the spiritual commitment. Then suddenly you see, wait a minute, you know, I am not master in my own house. There's another master here who's trying to get me to do something that I don't want to do, or that I've said I don't want to do, but maybe I do want to do it because to the degree I identify with that nafs, well, that's me too. Well, maybe I should do it half the time, and you go back and forth. Well, okay, you, you, you may make a commitment to say, I will quash this nafs, I will quash these passions, that's the, you know, now, 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 you know, the gloves are off. Well, you will quickly find that you cannot quash the nafs. The nafs is too powerful. And one of the biggest reasons you can't quash the nafs is because the intent to use self-will to quash the nafs is actually part of the nafs. That's one of the things the nafs likes to do is believe it can, it, you know, it's master in its own house and can control everything and determine everything. So that's part of part of the problem. So once you get to that place, you say, well, this isn't working out. And you start to feel very bad because, um, you know, you see you're, you're not meeting the mark and you don't know how to how to proceed. And this is called this is the next stage of the development of the nafs, which is the accusing nafs. Now, now you say, you know, well, I can't do it. I'm, you know, I'm, I cannot, I cannot get my life together. I can't, you know, it's, it's how will I ever, you know, re reach this impossible spiritual goal? And you, and you, and there's a lot of internal struggle. And the nafs also 
gets in the way of your connect, connecting with God by saying, you failed, you cannot meet your goal, you know, you're, you've, you've, you know, um, how you'll never, you'll never get there, you'll never get there, you know, and, um, you know, if, if, if this is where this nafs needs to be a little quiet, and then you realize you were already there, really, if it weren't for, for the distractions of your impulses, and then the distractions of your uh, un, uneasy conscience, and both are distractions, you know, one is a higher level of distraction than the other, because it has some some sense of, of, of what your duties are in life, and you know, that you need to fulfill them, but still, it doesn't get you anywhere beyond internal conflict. And so finally, the point comes, by the grace of God, inshallah, that through a series of what's called the education of the nafs, the nafs learns how not to struggle against, against the will of God. And what is the will of God? The will of God is actually what is going on right now on the deepest level, beyond you and your impulses and you and your worries about yourself. Something deeper than that. And it's already going on and it's already there. And uh, what you need to do is recognize its presence and then understand how to say yes to it and how to, how to um, how to be obedient to it. We talk. We don't like the idea of obedience, but you know, obedience to what is, to what is going on, means your will is in line with reality. And you know, if your when your will is fully in line with reality, then you start to get into the level that is called the nafs al ma'ina, which is the self at peace. The the, the nafs um, the accusing nafs is the nafs al-lawama, and then we get to the nafs al-ma'ina, which is the soul of peace. And this is the idea, this is the essence of Islam. Islam is, you know, as, as often pointed out, the word Islam comes from the same root as the word salam, which means peace. Peace in the sense of completeness, flawlessness no chinks or holes that cause internal conflict, a fullness, a completeness, a rest. That's what uh, Salam is. So, so um, in, the, in the course of uh, the Sufi path, th this is what, what one hopes to get to, is the self at peace, in terms, looking at it in terms of the nafs. Now, there's other ways to look at it. You look at it in terms of the spiritual states and, and, and in terms of... Uh, of metaphysical realizations and things like this, but um, Sufism has innumerable perspectives, and there's really no way to to step back and say, well, how do we put all this together? And here it says this, then over here it says this, and now it's saying this, you know. And, and if if you try to use your mind to put it all together, you will go crazy. It cannot be done. But these are all teachings that arise at different points when necessary. One of the characteristics that I think most people understand are associated with Sufism, is associated with Sufism, is poetry. Sufism is, is noted for having uh, great poets like Rumi. Indeed. Well, that's interesting because just before uh, you appeared, I went and I got a little thing on my computer here. 
which I can read you. Since she said poetry, now I get to get to read a poem. It's not by me. It is by Rumi, but um, I was given the opportunity to write poetic versions of Rumi's collected quatrains. You know, quatrains he wrote. The Mathnavi is his big book, but that means couplets. It was all written in couplets. But also he wrote um, many, you might say, even occasional um, quatrains. And there, there's a big collection of these that, that were um, uh, translated by Ibrahim Gamard and, and Rahwan Farhadi. And uh, they came to me and they said, write poetic versions of these. We've got, we've got it. it down to uh, you know correct literal translations, which is the first step. Now make them poetic. So I was doing this, and then I got a computer crash, and I lost most of them because really I could have I could have spent my life doing that and never come out again, you know, because because it, it's a big uh, big bunch of stuff. And um, but what I did, there was some of them which naturally, for some reason, wanted to go into rhymed iambic pentameter. So they became something very close to Western verse. And not, that, that's not been done a lot. I mean, so what I have here is something that, that are the lyrics of a song that somebody could put to music, and it would be a, a, a song, you know, an English uh, poem or a song, uh, you know, in English lyrics, but by Rumi. And yeah. we, I haven't seen a lot of that. You know, people will there'll be readings of Rumi and them to the to the nay accompaniment, but or, or there'll be you know once in a while there'll be a little rhyme or something like meter, but but not not a complete rhyme to metered poem that can be sung. So this is what I came up with. So imagine this sung. So it has no title because th these these you know are are taken from many many different parts of the book and they just came together like this. So goes like this. What is this sorrow grips me like the night? Is it blind? Does it see me lost to light? Earth shows my image, yet in heaven I'm free. What hand can lift a star from off the sea? Who claims the ever-living ever one has died? The sun of hope is gone, his days are done. Sun killer climbed the roof and shut his eyes, then cried out like a fool, I've killed the sun. Every day my heart drinks one new wine whose sweetness kills the taste of all wines past. He first ferments love sickness, that wine master, and then serves up oblivion at last. Anyone might have a friend or lover, anyone hold a job or play a part. Like the prophet and his caliph in their cavern, I'm with him in the furnace of my heart. That love from which my lifeless life takes life, a love so fine, so sweet, where does it live? Is it from mortal flesh or from beyond it, or a glance that he, Tabriz's son, might give? Oh, wounded heart, your cure has finally come. Breathe easy now, your healing has been born. A love who grants the wish of every lover has come into this world in human form. To behold the beauty of the king, what joy! My soul takes life from that exquisite face. In a dream, I saw the black chains of his love. What could it mean? That dream disturbs my peace. That musky totter curl is pure delight. To hunt a prey like me, delightful sport. 
In spring, in early spring, the world is sweet, like sugar and candy holding hands so right. From your tall shape, the cypress stole its grace. The rose to tore open its shirt when it saw your face. For God's sake, lift a mirror, then you'll see. Not one like me from end to end of space. Did the perfumed rose ever catch your scent? No, never. Have the sun or stars ever seen your light? No, never. It's night, you say, behold my darkened window. If you go, it's night, but otherwise, no, never. I found no peace. I died of shame without you. When I came to court, I quit my life without you. Without you, how can I break the grip of sorrow? Cloaked with loss, I cried tears of blood without you. I'll tear my heart from your ground, I say, but I can't. I'll learn to breathe without you, but I can't. I'll drive your longing from my heart, I brag. If I were man enough, to, I'd do it, but I can't. I have no one, only you. Where can I turn? No cure for this ravaged heart. Where can I turn? How long, you ask, will we whirl with the whirling stars? It's the only trade I know. Where can I turn? You'll get no help from me, my friend, he said, just silly drunkenness and wine and laughter. To kill to sobriety and drive out reason is why God sent me down into this slaughter. I'll take the blame for you a hundred times. If I break my pledge to you, I'll pay the price. As long as I draw breath, I'll stand your blows till the day of resurrection. This you know. Your slap is sweeter than another's kiss. Your wound is richer than another's gift. Your cruelty kinder than another's care. Your insult dearer than another's bliss. If I fill the sky with groans, I am forgiven. If I water the plain with tears, I am forgiven. You are my soul. That's why I must pursue you. And if soul follows self instead, I am forgiven. The water of life dropped from your shining face. Of that world of light, the moon is just a trace. I want moonlight, moonlight all night long, I cried. The night is your night black curls, the moon your face. Oh, friend, my friendship makes a mighty union. Where you might walk, I'll be the earth for you. In the creed of lovers, it's a dark transgression through your eyes to see the world, but not see you. I'm glad this passing world can't make me happy. Drunk without wine, superb intoxication. Why do I need to hear some other story when endless blessings rise from my secret glory? May the heart of love never look upon this world. What's worthy to be seen by love but love? The day I die, I'll cast away these eyes if... In gazing on this world, they turned from love. This dying earth, how long to smell and taste it. It's time to meet that one perfect grace. In the mirror of his face, I find myself. In the mirror of my heart, I'll see his face. The fruit will set on the blossoming branch someday. The hungry hawk will seize the dove someday. His image comes and goes. When will it stay? It will make its home inside your heart someday. 
Well, Rumi, who do we have in the West to compare to Rumi? Shakespeare, Dante, Blake, nobody else. I mean, really, Dante is the only one that, that really me measures up. That was magnificent. And, and I guess it was Rumi, but it was also you. Well, yeah, it, 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 it has to be. And, and then and now it's also you because it went through you. So it, it goes on, you know. It seems as if poetry is so important in Sufism because there are truths that can't be expressed any other way. That, that's true. That's true. And, and also, you know, there, there's music in Sufism as well. If you ever listen to classical Ottoman music, which is the music that's played in, in the Mevlevi Sema, you know, with the whirling dervishes, I mean, just and, and also, you know, classical Persian music is magnificent. They're, they're, they're and they're consciously spiritual. Um, you know, like Gregorian chant, they're not like Gregorian chant in style or in feel, but they have the same conscious relationship to spirituality. So, but of course, the other thing that Rumi said about poetry is he he, he compared it to tripe. He says poetry is really really distasteful to me. You know, it's it's like tripe. It's like you know, I see. I, I have friends who like poetry. You know, it's it's like having friends who who have a taste for tripe, and I invite them over to my house, and I have to be hospitable to them. I have to be hospital hospitable to them, and so uh, I cook up a big uh, uh, pot of tripe, and I have to be up to my elbows in tripe. That's fine, and you know, that's what they like. I'll serve them, but really, it's quite distasteful to me, which is important to say too. You know, there's a um, a surah in the Quran called the Poets. And it's the only it really talks about the danger of poetry. You know, it's it said, you know, who who um, shall I show you those upon whom the Satans descend? Um, they wander distraught in every valley and, you know, and, and the, the erring follow them. They wander distraught in every valley and say which that, that which they do not, which is the danger, because the words become exquisite. And then you've said the words and you think the work is done. And it's not. That's just the words. You know, that's the advertisement. And you, you're supposed to be beyond the advertisement. You're supposed to be, well, you know, the beauty of all this poetry got, got me down in this, into this, you know, <laughs> this uh, salt mine where I, where I have to labor away for 20 years, you know. At, at, least, at least I wouldn't be here, and I'm glad to be here because this is where the work is done. You know, you, you need, and there's also, and there's, there's mercy and there's relief and there's expansion and, and there's touching of the heart. But there's, then there's the hard work and the, and the you know, as, as, as is described in the poetry, you know, it keeps going back and forth between, you know, deliverance, the cure has come, you know, the beauty of the king has come, and now, you know, I'm, I cried tears of blood without you. And that's very much um, part and parcel of, of the alter, alternation of Sufi states. It's not like one is going, I'm going toward, you know, um, Savikalpa Samadhi, and then I will reach Nirvikalpa Samadhi, and then, God willing, it will be uh, Sahaja Samadhi. It's not like that. It's, you know, you, you, you are... As as in Persian poetry, so often makes this <clears throat> comparison. Your 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 head is like the polo ball on the court, and, and God is the one with the mallet. You know, bam. You know, the the idea that 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 you are always being overwhelmed by the actions of God, and ultimately there's nothing that isn't an action. You know, the the the, 
the expansive spiritual beautiful states and, and, and the states of terrible remorse and self-hatred or, or just dullness and heaviness. These are all God turning your heart in different directions so that you will learn different things and be purified of different egos. And, and this is this. So, you know, th th this idea of, you know, I, I've sometimes, you know, semi-humorously said that, that Sufism is a, is a yeah, spiritual path for, for the bipolar. You know? <laughs> There's something, something like that to it, but it, it's, it's very much, um, you know, and, and then, you know, God willing, the alterations moderate because they moderate when the, the, the sense of a separate individual that could be subject to all those states begins to fade away. It's not that, that the individual gets the great state and it stays. No, the individual that's subject to all the different states slowly fades away and there's nothing but God. So that's what that's what the Sufis say anyway. You place a lot of emphasis on the idea of the sheikh in in Sufism and and the notion I think that the sheikh is a uh, an exemplar or a representative of this state of God expressing itself through one. Yes, you know the sheikh is very important and and um you know, I have to say that, that you know, at, at, at this point, um, I'm with a Sufi order that is without a sheikh, and our sheikh, uh, you know, went, went through a, a, a guru meltdown, just like the, the classic guru meltdown that we've seen so many times, and our sheikh did it too. He did, he did, did, did a really one of the best versions of it I've ever seen. It was, it was so total and so fast. But um, so here we sit and, and, and we say, you know, we do not have a living sheikh, but, you know, we, we are in the lineage of the, you know, the living sheikhs and, and the silsila and the transmission of the teachings and, and God willing, the, the grace of the path has come to us through the line of sheikhs. So here we sit, you know, just meeting once a week on Zoom, you know, about 40 people around the world and we continue you know, because who knows? Maybe, maybe the uh, maybe the next sheikh will be the Mahdi. Who knows? Or maybe God will send another sheikh. We don't know. But you know, it, it there, there's because the, the, the sheikh is is absolutely absolutely necessary. You know, the, the the one who you know can you know heal the pain of every lover is coming to this world in human form. That's the sheikh. That that's Rumi talking about Shams. Uh, Tabrizi, uh, but you know the, the 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 form comes and then the form goes. It's like Jesus said, you know, I have to go because if I didn't go, the Paraclete, the Spirit, could not come. So that that that's always the way it is. You know, you 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 need the actual human transmission of someone who who has realized. And on the, on the other hand, you you will become. You know, you will turn him into an idol if he doesn't go at one point. And, of course, death takes him. But the, our last sheikh, you know, uh, there, there's some people who stayed with him no matter how corrupt he was because he's the sheikh. And there's others who just gave up and, and, the, and their hearts were broken. And they say, we don't know what to do. now. And I'm in the third group that says, you know, uh, as as 
um, Abu Bakr said after the Prophet passed away, you know, the Prophet passed away and the Muslims were distraught and, you know, and tearing their hair. And, and Abu Bakr said, if you worship Muhammad, know that he is dead. If you worship Allah, know that he never dies. So this is what we have to say when our sheikh disappears. You know, exactly that. And so it's an opportunity. Because every, every expression of the truth becomes also a veil over the face of the truth. Every time. It has to happen that way. And, and, the, and that's what's, what's dangerous about beautiful veils like the poetry of Rumi. You say, that's it, that's it. Well, that isn't it either. You know, I mean, there, there's a Sufi practice called uh, fiqh, which just means, um, it's translated as contemplation. But as I understand it, and this may not be the only understanding, it's related to the word uh, fakir, which means poor one. That's another uh, synonym of, of, of Sufi. It's, it's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. He meant, blessed are the fukara, the fakirs, for they shall see God. And so the poverty, how does poverty relate to uh, contemplation? Well, you, you contemplate, you know, the, the, the unnameable, the unknowable. It's not entirely unknowable because er, all knowledge is, is streaming from Allah at every moment. Knowledge of anything, not just of him, but all of his manifestation. And so, you know, and yet, you know, who he is in himself, what he is in himself, you can't quite get it. You get, you get, you know, a magnificent version of, of, of who God is. And then, you know, it comes to you as, as a magnificent gift from God. I, this is who I am, this is my name, you know, speak my name and you will come to me. Here I am. And, and, and then a second later, that beautiful vi vision becomes a terrible veil. But that's not him. That's just, that's just something he sent that's now only a thought in my mind. That's nothing. Who is he really? And you keep going, you keep peeling away the different versions of him that he sends you, trying, you know, to, to get farther. And you, you, you can't get behind the veil because you are part of the veil. So what really happens is as you're peeling away those layers, you're peeling away layers of yourself. And when you are gone, then there's only God and you don't have to worry about whether you understand him or not. <laughs> I know one of the traps that you wrote about is is this very idea that uh, God is always there all the time in in every way and everything, and therefore I'm already one with God, so there's nothing more to do. Yeah, or as some people will say, and that means I can do anything I want. That's another good one. You know, it's a lot of yeah, and and it's. You know, and, and then that, that belief becomes another, you know, limited belief that becomes a barrier. And, it, you know, all the beliefs get peeled away. And it's funny to talk about Sufism because usually people who talk about Sufism are scholars of religion, you know, who study it from the outside and have some inter interesting things to say. Or there are sheikhs who say, I am... You know, at, at least for you, for, for those who've accepted me in this role, you know, I, I am the proof of what I say. You know, and that that because it's interesting what a, a sheikh can say something. Which if anybody else said it, it would just be a, a moral platitude or something not very interesting. But when the sheikh says it, 
along with his saying of it comes to you the power to realize what he has said. That's what makes the words of a sheikh different from the words of a philosopher. The philosopher may even be more interesting intellectually, but the sheikh says something very simple, but he's saying it with existential completeness and, and what he says has the power to be realized. I'm something in between a, a philosopher and a sheikh. I'm a poet, which means, you know, it all comes in little flashes. You know, poetry is so intermittent. Poetry is just flash, flash, and you, you know, and then it's then it's gone. So that's that, that's. And I don't know what happens to those flashes after they go. I've never never seen what they do. You know, they go somewhere and do something. Well, Charles, this this has been a magnificent conversation. Uh, I'm so delighted that you shared your poetry and your passion for Sufism. I know it's an endless topic. We 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 could have a hundred more conversations like this, and uh, I'm so pleased that uh, we've discover you for new thinking aloud and are able to share your insights because uh, I I just find them uh, inspiring and scintillating. And uh, while I can't say that I come from a traditionalist perspective at all, I, I've learned to see it with new respect because of you. Well, I'm, I'm glad, I, you know, because there, there are a lot of, of worthy you know, at least philosophers and, and certainly some people who have gone beyond that level in the traditionalist world. Well, Charles Upton, once again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for being with me today. And I look forward to many more conversations. Well, so do I. So um, thank, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Because like I say, um, w when, I, when I speak on these subjects, I'm also a member of the audience. You know, I mean, there's a part of me because I suppose you would say because I'm a poet or have some kind of facility like that where the words will come, you know, and, and they will. They, and sometimes I'll be quite surprised at what they are. What? You know, because I'm sitting here as part of the audience. I'm saying things that I need to hear, too, because I haven't necessarily realized all this stuff. You know, it's come as as poetry. And, you know, and, and, and the, the, the distance from from. From poetry to this is what it says in the Quran, you know, that, you know, poets are those who say which that which they do not. That's the danger. It, it says apart from those who who do good works and remember God often and vindicate themselves after they have been wronged. Now, those are the three things that allow a poet not to be misled and 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 led astray by his own art. You do good works. I understand that. You know, remember God. You know, be pious and, and do your spiritual practices. I remember that. I understand that. But what's this vindicate themselves after they've been wronged? You know, it's it's like sometimes an inspiration can be an attack. It can wrong you. You know, it wrongs you because it takes you beyond what you really are. And the only way you vindicate yourself after being taken beyond what you really are, which if 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 it if it stays there, it's, it's a great misfortune, is you have to live up to it. That's how you vindicate yourself. So, I mean, I'm telling you, that the Prophet Muhammad did understand what poetry was very clearly, because poetry was so important in his culture. You know? and, uh, and what's interesting about the Quran, the Quran is not poetry, and he had to make a point. You know, first, when, when, when the, the, the 
Angel Gabriel came to him and started to dictate the Quran, you know, he he totally freaked and he ran home to his wife Khadija and like hid under the bed or hid her, and he says, "Hide me, hide me," you know. He says, "I'm afraid I've bec I've become a poet," you know, because his society was filled with ecstatic, crazy poets running around and 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 who were tended to be very unreliable types, you know. And, and he says, "I'm going to go, you know, God, please." You know, I pray that I not become a poet. And then he, he had good friends who came and said, don't worry. You know, this is from Allah. You're not just a poet. The poets were inspired by the jinn. You know, they had they were like all half magicians, you know, and, and he didn't want to be that. So the, the Quran is the word of God like poetry. But if you want to see what the higher level is, you know, that doesn't have the uh, drawbacks of pure poetry, even the greatest poetry. This is the noble Quran. Well, that's very beautifully put, very inspiring, very insightful. Charles, uh, one, once again, thank you for being with me. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you as well for being with us.